Hello, Yesterladies listeners. Dana here with a bit of an explanation for the following episode on Wonder Woman. Heather and I had originally planned to release this episode ahead of the premiere of the new Wonder Woman movie. We were thinking that it would provide a little bit of context and help build some momentum for this um apparently really great film. Uh, neither of us have, have yet seen it ourselves, but of course it has been released now and our podcast is a little bit late because we unfortunately ran into some technical difficulties and had to re-record the second half. Um, now this also explains why in the following episode, my voice sounds very different from the first half to the second, uh, because I came down with some pretty intense allergies, uh, during that period. And so I do apologize for my rather congested, um, uh, sound in the second half of this episode. So we just wanted to give this little explanation, um, to explain why we're talking about the movie as if it has not been released. Um, the movie is out now, please go see it. And, um, if you've already seen it, I hope you enjoy the, the historical perspective that we provide in this episode. If you have not yet seen the movie, we hope that this episode gives you some, uh, encouragement to go see it. Uh, Heather and I will be going soon and we can't wait. So please enjoy the following episode and I will turn it over to Heather and myself. Hello and welcome once again to Yester Ladies. So Heather, I believe we've got a topic for today, but I, I need a little more information because I don't know who exactly this is. So can you give me some hints about who we're talking about today? Well, Dana, I absolutely can. The first hint I'm going to give you is that our, our topic is the most popular female comic book superhero of all time. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh. All right. And she is the uh, longest running character ever, except for Batman and Superman. Okay, that's a pretty good hint, too. Number three. Mm -hmm. Okay. And she was explicitly created as a feminist figure for the comic book world. Okay, okay. Now I'm pretty sure I know. We're talking about Wonder Woman, right? Yes, we are. Wonder Woman! Wonder Woman! <laughs> that's who we're talking about. Oh my God, I was right. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> I might have done some reading myself. <laughs> I hope you did, or this is going to be a very Heather heavy episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, no fear. I have done my, my homework as well. Uh, <laughs> and we've got a lot to say about Wonder Woman because um, she's not just some, I don't know, creation. I don't know. There's just a lot there. There is. <laughs> there's a lot of history with Wonder Woman. There's a there's lot of history. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of cultural history to pull in and we will get into all of this. Mm -hmm. But we did also want to mention that we chose her for this date and this release right. date because we're so excited mm -hmm. that... Uh, oh, oh. So excited. I think I think perhaps myself a little bit more than Heather, just because I am, uh, I will confess to being a really big um, superhero movie fan, superhero fan in general. Mm -hmm. And I will say that I am a Marvel girl at heart. But as I was saying to Heather a little while ago, um, Marvel, as much as I adore it, has kind of broken my heart over the last few years with their absolute insane refusal to create a uh woman led movie when there are so many opportunities to do so and like that's a whole thing and i 
I'll just go on forever if we get into that. So <laughs> all I'll say is, you know, there's absolutely no reason why we don't yet have a Black Widow movie. But um, <laughs> as much as I am a Marvel girl, DC is kind of winning me over because finally, finally, yes. we're getting a female superhero movie. And there have been so few of them. The only one I can, like serious one in the last number of years that I can think of is Catwoman. And that was terrible <laughs> and really bombed. And now, unfortunately, of course, movie producers and studios have used it mm. as a ridiculous reason for not making female-led superhero movies because we'll look at Catwoman. It didn't mm. do well, blah, 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 blah. Well, it was crap. So that's probably why. <laughs> yes, if you just made it a good if you make female a good movie. And you cannot movie. convince me that a Black Widow movie led by Scarlett Johansson. No. What's her name? Yeah. 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 Scarlett Johansson. Yep. What's wrong with me? Um, wouldn't do well. Because, oh, I mean, she has, know. like, done really well, like, made lots of money in, like, action-driven movies where she has led... Very true. In a so, non-superhero yes, role. There's yeah, no reason. A, a Black Widow movie, I'm, I'm positive it would it would do just as well as all of the other Marvel movies, which, mm -hmm. of course, always do really well. Anyway, anyway digression to say, um, I was we were rewatching the trailers for Wonder Woman, which is we should say we are recording on um, Wednesday. The movie is opening uh, tomorrow night, so the look for this podcast this Friday is when you will possibly be listening to it. But whenever <laughs> you're listening to it, the movie will be out. So I encourage you, please go watch Wonder Woman and prove to the Hollywood that people are going to want to see female-driven superhero movie. So please mm -hmm. go see this movie. I have high hopes for it. You know, Batman versus Superman was pretty disappointing, <laughs> but Gal Gadot and Wonder Woman was definitely the best part of that movie. So I have, I have high hopes for this one. The trailers look really good. I've heard good things. So cross your fingers and please go see this movie. And it would be so satisfying if Wonder Woman topped the charts on its opening know, weekend right? and just, you know, blew expectations out of the park and made everyone tons of money and makes that genre or that subgenre profitable and thus <laughs> and ending this ridiculous drought argument yes. that yes. that um female superheroes don't make for good movies that sell well because you can't convince me that women and little girls around the world don't want to see female superheroes uh, leading their own movies. Right, right. Or that men and boys don't want to see it. Yeah, exactly. No, and that's a very good point. Yeah. That's a very yeah. good point. Yeah. If I love Captain America, there's no reason <laughs> why a guy can't love Wonder Woman. Exactly. Yeah. I like it. All mm -hmm. right. All right. Well, that was a whole long diatribe about these movies as a way to get into. <laughs> but that's okay because the, the feminist issues we're discussing right now lead right into yes. all of the cultural and feminist underpinnings of all of her history. So, And it's quite appropriate, actually, that Wonder Woman is kind of this movie, I should say, is poised to be kind of the breakout female superhero movie that it could possibly be because wonder woman was the first mm. female superhero and she was as heather mentioned tremendously successful and what i think and i didn't realize i kind of knew that going into our research for this but what i didn't realize is how deliberate yes. she was how so much effort went into her creation and as heather said she was deliberately created to be a feminist icon and a symbol for women's emancipation and liberation and, you know, the suffrage movement and equal rights. Um, 
which is pretty cool because mm-hmm. she came out in what was I think her she made her debut in 1941. Yeah, correct. Right. And I was surprised how early that was and how very strongly feminist she was for that time period. I thought it would be a case of well she comes out and it's just groundbreaking because she's a woman and then slowly she kind of builds up what's um this like more feminist or more I don't know more warlike or more aggressive or more masculine tendencies as time goes on or what's interesting of course was, is that the opposite is right. kind of true and we'll get into that um yeah we'll save that yeah. we'll get into that yeah. but yeah she comes out swinging she really does so she was created uh, by a psychologist named dr william moulton marston and we've got a lot to say about bill he's a real interesting he's character. a real character um and there's a, a lot of our research is based on this book um the secret history of wonder woman by jill Lepore, and it's really good and really interesting. It is kind of more than anything else, I would say. It's definitely about, you can't talk about Wonder Woman without talking about William Moulton Marston. Mm, very true. Um, but it is, the book to me, it kind of felt like more of a biography of him than anything else. But I think that's kind of what ends up happening when you talk about the creation of Wonder Woman, because so much of his psychology <laughs> went into <laughs> Wonder Woman. Right. But um, she definitely is who she is as a character day, today because of dr marston um mm-hmm. and because of his kind of quirky and unusual especially for the time unusual worldviews um or preferences and uh and we'll get into all that but there's a great quote to lead us off from marston about how he created wonder woman and he says quote frankly wonder woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who i believe should rule the world <laughs> and, i mean we can't there you go. disagree with that no <laughs> <laughs> i have to say both dan and i agree that we have we really love the feminist um elements of marston there are some other things that are a little shadier he's a complicated but, fellow but we really enjoy how strongly and passionately feminist he was at a time where that was much rarer mm-hmm. than it is today like right from his early days like yes. it was kind of always his his mantra mm-hmm. and uh, you got to give him a lot of credit for really really sticking with that all through his life um and just to give a little bit of context i think because there's so much about marston like he did a whole lot yes. in his life before he got to wonder woman and he was you know quite middle-aged mm-hmm. before before the creation of of wonder woman and really you know, it wasn't that many years that he was involved with Wonder Woman before he unfortunately passed away. Um, but uh, that's why it's kind of like so much of Wonder Woman is is the the life story of of Bill Marston, you know, as he's kind of doing all of these things and all of it contributes to what Wonder Woman was. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see a lot of elements of his life kind of pulled into the woman wonder woman story and her character and all that so all right so we'll give you a little context about comics at the time um wonder woman first appeared in 1941 but she had her cover debut in 1942 which was also sort of a seminal moment for comics um and she appeared first in sensation comics Mm -hmm. (laughs) which uh which was quite sensational from from what we understand and uh we should say just in case i didn't make it clear earlier um and if you're not aware uh wonder woman is a dc comics uh character and that dc is detective comics mm, I, didn't, I believe it, yes i didn't know that until i started pretty this sure research. um f- and there of course their other two most famous characters are batman and superman superman came along first mm-hmm. batman i think i think superman was like 39 batman was 40 oh, and you then, were so close superman oh, was 38 and batman okay. was 39 okay yep. and then wonder woman was 41 right um 
so that yeah that's so dc is is justice league all of that batman superman wonder woman um and of course marvel is where you get captain america iron man um black widow all of those people so just just to clarify for all of our <laughs> listeners who are not as ardent uh <laughs> comic fans as i am yes and i have to uh, full disclosure i am not a, a big comic fan although mm. this was really fascinating so heart. a lot of this was new to me and i ca- i came in sort of you know the babe in the woods here so <laughs> i'm glad i have dana to sort out camps draw the line in this no sand. i should i should say i am definitely no expert especially when it comes to the comics themselves i mm. haven't done a lot of reading especially of the classic comics mostly be and i always i'm always um intending to but it seems so daunting it's like where do you begin so it's one of those things that eventually i i hope to kind of get in and and pursue the all those those multiple storylines at some point but um my gateway into superheroes has definitely been the movies and i kind of have always loved well i um batman was my first favorite superhero Ah. because i was obsessed with the uh the campy 1960s TV show when I was a kid. They used to air reruns and my parents had taped the movie that they made with uh, Adam West and Burt Ward and all of those guys. Um, I was obsessed with that show. It was amazing. It was so stupid and so good. The really bad costumes. Yeah. 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 So that, and then of course, Batman, the animated series, which was mm. brilliant in the nineties. So well done. So moody and, uh, and noir. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but nice. uh, anyway. Nice. Anyway. Um, all right. So comics themselves or started themselves as a genre uh, by a gentleman in 1933. His name was Maxwell Charles Gaines. And Gaines plays a big role in this story as well. Um, he was a former elementary school principal, which makes sense. And he starts a company called All American Comics. And basically, they were almost an instant success. Um, they swept the nation. Uh, one of the articles I read said they went viral. <laughs> <laughs> and kids are reading them like mad it becomes almost addictive um so by 1941 wonder woman has been released just to just a little bit more context there Mm -hmm. uh superheroes took a little bit more time to come onto the scene um comic books at first were um all sorts of other things especially like detective stories and and I think there were like romances and all sorts of other things, but it was uh superman was the first superhero and it took several years before that came into being and of course there's a lot of information about the history of superman and his kind of origins in um science fiction and and all of that stuff and then batman of course has his roots in detective stories mm. um but yeah it took a it took a while before superheroes kind of came on the scene and as you said wonder woman was one of the first which is kind of surprising it is neat it's it's neat that there was only a gap of maybe a year or two before she showed up because again coming into this not knowing anything i thought there would be a much larger gap so i was pleased to see that there was not um so comics get very popular very fast but parents also become very concerned very fast so as soon as or as early as 1940 um the violence and and sexual violence particularly in comics start worrying parents and experts and it's basically the exact same conversation as video games today (laughs) like is this damaging our kid are we raising a generation of degenerates or uh (laughs) juvenile delinquents violence yeah right and the chicago daily news is quoted as quoted as saying that comics are a national disgrace (laughs) so um and from what i can tell the violence and the sexual violence was fairly shocking yeah Yeah. fairly risque um so you know as a parent i can't say that i wouldn't also (laughs) be concerned depending on the age and maturity level of my kid but uh it's funny that we're having the exact same conversation now decades later with just a new format of entertainment 
Um, so what happens is Gaines, who has created comic books, uh, sees this pushback and goes, okay, I better make sure I'm doing this right. He seems like a really genuine guy. Like he was not trying to just make a buck off of America's kids, which to his credit. Um, so he hires Marston, who was a, an internationally well-known, um, psychologist. So, um, yeah, Marston. <laughs> to give you a little bit of context about Marston, very interesting man, um, had several Harvard degrees, um, very kind of East Coast intellectual. Um, there's uh, really, there's a, you should read this this book that I previously mentioned. There's a lot of interesting information about his backstory. But one of the kind of most interesting things about him, aside from him, being the creator of Wonder Woman is the fact that he is credited as one of the first inventors of the lie detector test. Um, now he's not the guy who created the lie detector test that we're all kind of familiar with today. That is the one that is still used, you know, with some caveats. <laughs> um, that's a whole other thing. But um, he was the first person to come up with a device that he called a lie detector test. And he, in his um, studies and his, his pursuit of psychology, he was obsessed with kind of two things in particular, one being truth and the detection of lies, uh, and the other being sex and, um, like feminism and the, the, the role of women and, you know, all of this kind of thing all kind of boiled down to sex. Like he was really interested in sex. <laughs> uh, so you can kind of see, uh, how those two things get kind of wrapped mm. up into the character of Wonder Woman. I love, of course, that the guy who, you know, uh, invented the lie detector test comes up with <laughs> Wonder Woman's golden lasso, which um, when she when she uses it, forces men to tell the truth. Um, but he, I mean, he was, he became very well known, uh, I think, especially early on in career, his career. And he did all of these interesting things, including like, winning a screenplay contest uh, as a very young man and he like wrote screenplays to help pay his bills especially in the early part of his career and he had a very promising start in academia um he had a law degree along with his wife oh my gosh there's so much to talk about here i feel like every time i bring something up there's like oh well but there's that too <laughs> okay, okay we'll i've got into... notes about the family okay to go good we'll get into yeah. his family situation yeah. in a little bit but anyway for now <laughs> For now, um, Marston, um, he had his law degree as well as psychology. Um, and he kind of tried a couple of different, he was always like trying things and then they never quite went anywhere. So like he tried a law practice and that didn't really go anywhere. He tried another business or two that never really got off the ground. He kind of found his niche in academia, but we'll get into this in a minute, mm -hmm. Partly, at least, because of his family, his unique family situation, which was kind of, they kept it as hush-hush as possible, but it it was, I think, known among um, his peers, or at least suspected, that was one of the reasons why his academic career kind of slowly went downhill, and he kind of ended up with um, a series, he, ne he never stayed at one university for very long, and always kind of moved down the ladder. Um, and in the end, I mean, he also had a stint um, working as a psychologist in Hollywood for, for <laughs> movies and like helping to uh, define what would make a good talkie and all of this stuff. Like he did all of this stuff. He really was, was very busy over the course of his career, but he never was hugely successful as an academic, partly because he kept getting shuffled on. And I think, as we said, he's a complicated character. It wasn't just because of his family situation. Mm. You know, he had kind of some character flaws that 
contributed to that as well. But yeah, I don't know how to sum him up exactly, except mm. to say that he had a very wide ranging career. Yes. <laughs> he was never super successful in any mm. one thing. He kind of bounced around and did all of these different things, which kind of culminated in his work on Wonder Woman in his in his later years. So he does. It's I guess it's nice. It's something he did kind of carries on through the ages right he does oh yeah this, for sure this I mean, legacy yeah, yeah it's interesting like kind of this thing that he did late in his life that i think it did mean a lot to him but it was really only the last few years of his life that he was doing this and it wasn't necessarily his focus all the time and this is the thing that mm. of his that has lasted i mean you can make an argument for the lie detector um those are two pretty sure. big things but um yeah i would say the legacy of wonder woman is is right. more so right. the lasting and important thing that he left I'm wondering if it's because he put someone else in the spotlight. <laughs> he did. A, that's one thing about Bill. Figure. He yeah. loved the spotlight. He was very kind of, he was a big personality, I think. One of the articles I read about him said he had a Forrest Gump-like ability to get himself into like major turning points in history. <laughs> yeah, that that's a good. Really clever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, by his own words, he lived a quote, an experimental life. <laughs> um, and he worked as a professor, a lawyer, a scientist, all these things. He he's wrote screenplays, novels, magazine articles. He's publishing right and left. Um, and so Gaines hired him uh, to help create the right kind of comics. So Gaines doesn't know any of this about Marston and hires him just kind of off the cuff from like an ad in the newspaper to say, uh, saying, I need a psychologist who's just going to scan this over and make sure I'm not hurting kids <laughs> with these comics, right? Uh, help us sort of water this down or tone it down so that parents feel confident buying comics for their kids, this kind of thing. Um, so had he known some of the shadier things about Marston, <laughs> I really, or, or just the more Unusual. Interesting details yeah, interesting of his personal life. Features of his life. Uh, I feel that Gaines would not have hired him uh, for that job because they conflict quite strongly with... Uh, uh, well, I don't know if they conflict. Well, a lot of what Marston was doing in his personal life were, were exactly the things that they well, didn't want true. to get into comics. That's true. So it's, I, I, guess, true. <laughs> I guess it's ironic. So I guess I'm thinking like... The ideals of Wonder Woman don't conflict. No, with his not at all. Life, not but at that's all. not what you're saying. Yeah, yeah no. you're saying that because yeah, Marston yeah. was a very committed feminist, um, and he was coming out of the era of suffragists, and he was he was like adamantly feminist, which is so wonderful and very refreshing from very a professional man and an intellectual yeah. man at the time or an, an academic. Um, and he believed that women were inherently more peaceful and benevolent than men. Um, and I which, love this. again, there's that questionable like, oh, women are uh, should have equal equality because they are. Better. Right. which is problematic and not really something we agree with and leads to all sorts of other problems right um and this is one of my favorite details about him in 1937 he convened a press conference to predict that women would one day rule the world yeah so, and the headlines so, were like thanks. psychologist predicts a thousand years hence women will rule the world and then another one was like women's rule inevitable like they just took it too far i think from what he was predicting so so that's a, a strong positive feature of his personality um and his quote is Women have twice the emotional development, the ability for love than a man has, uh, as they develop as much ability for worldly success as they already have ability for love. They will come clearly to rule business and the nation and the world. <laughs> so he feels very strongly about this. Um, but there was there was more colorful side as well. So we've been beating around the bush about his family situation. Mm -hmm. You must um, be very titillated by yes, this point. By to this know. point, you're going, God, what? And let us, let me promise you, it's just as juicy as, <laughs> as you it's might hope. Good. It's pretty good. So uh, he started out fairly, fairly 
um, average. He married one of his um, longtime, like ch- childhood, schoolhood um, friends. Who uh, we should say is not average herself. Correct. So her name is Elizabeth Holloway. She was a lawyer, which in <laughs> the 1930s and 40s is well, I mean, they wonderful. Were- they were graduating from university in like the twenties, right? Correct. Yeah, so yes. even more kind of. Yeah, she was right. pretty, and she couldn't get a degree from Harvard because women weren't allowed in Harvard. So she right. had to go to Boston University to get her law degree. Mm. But she, I mean, really, yeah, Marston, he was a little bit of a, in some ways, a little bit of a ne'er do well. Like he couldn't quite. St- part of the reason he was bumped from all of these universities was he couldn't quite. He was charming, I think, but not necessarily a hard worker Mm. and wasn't necessarily sticking to things whereas holloway was just like Mm. she was the opposite and she was definitely she became the breadwinner in their family and like she was smart and efficient and hardworking and brilliant and all of these things so it's interesting that they these two people linked up and they talked about how holloway often was single-handedly supporting the family which grew to be you know fairly large um just on her work alone and mm-hmm. she was at this point only two percent of lawyers in the u.s were female so it was a, an extremely uphill battle upstream battle for her um and she she made it work so mm-hmm. literally yeah <laughs> um so the two married uh, i think right after law school and they had both graduated um i think doing very well and um uh, by the sort of the mid twenty twenties, uh, sorry, uh, he'd taken some lovers. He sort of cycled through women with some regularity. There were a lot of women connected with his life. Um, he was he was always kind of about about the idea of free love, free love, yes, yeah. very much so. And for him, it was a lifestyle choice. It wasn't adultery um, in the traditional sense because Holloway was aware of this, participated in a lot of it, and they were very much sort of a, a hippie, you know, communal lifestyle. Like if they had had this going on or if this had been their lifestyle in the 60s we would have just been like oh they're just hippie communal free lovers and yeah, it they're matched ahead of their time very they're much kind so. of out of place in the in the 30s and 40s right um yeah and so uh they were participating in cults of female sexual power <laughs> so this is like uh i don't know group sex uh mm-hmm. well, involved <laughs> with a group that was all about um the age of aquarius and the dawning of yeah the age of love and and all that which again it's like whoa this is like a couple decades too early right, right. um but obviously that's where where that period had its roots right and some of these were organized by his aunt which is a little weird (laughs) i'm like these seemed to be or like they were i love this detail there was this organization that they were a part of and it was like the free love and yeah it was like some kind of women's sexual whatever i'm not entirely sure it's a little vague and confusing um but these were like meetings and they would take minutes but it from the minutes it kind of sounds like they were taking minutes at an orgy like (laughs) these are like like sexual encounters (laughs) they're documenting it (laughs) and like making notes about like well when this happens this happens and like it's all very (laughs) a little scientific and a little you know very official (laughs) yes (laughs) that's wonderful so so definitely out of the mainstream um and a little bit later on uh he began to live a polygamist lifestyle um so he took a second wife um when he was teaching as a psych professor at Tufts University uh, was when he first met his second wife. Um, and uh, she was a student of his, which is, you know, a little a She little was quite weird. a bit younger than him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but after, um, I think after the student-professor uh, relationship ended, um, the two fell in love and uh, decided to 
I guess, formalize the relationship by having her move in. Um, they could well, legally marry again. And again, like, it's hard to know exactly because you kind of read all of this and you're like, oh, okay, so I guess all this worked out for good old Bill pretty well. <laughs> but you really do get the sense that both Holloway and Olive Byron, Byrne, I never know. Byrne? I was Byrne. pronouncing it Bernie, but. Oh. Well, we don't know. B Y R N E. Make your own judgment. Um, so Olive <laughs> and Elizabeth and Bill. Uh, we're all very like willing and knowing participants in this relationship. And it does sound, I don't know if there was also a sexual relationship between Elizabeth and Olive. Mm. Um, I wondered that too, when I was reading through, yeah. I got the sense that like possibly. Yeah. I um, would agree. That there's good potential for yeah, it because um, they all seemed very open. Mm-hmm. To- so it wasn't like Elizabeth or Olive were being hoodwinked or put upon or, mm. or any of that. It really seemed like all three of these people were like fully participating members in this relationship and we're all fine with it and um kind of as we'll get into had their specific roles yes absolutely so marston did present elizabeth with a bit of an ultimatum when he brought um olive into his life he oh, said right, yes he said olive is basically moving in with us or i'm leaving you so it's a little harsh that's i forgot about um, that detail yeah and so it seems like maybe the beginning was a little rough but things seem to kind of even out um, well and just you know skipping ahead a bit um it's fairly clear that olive and elizabeth in the end had a a very close relationship and um you know bill marston died relatively young um and both women outlived him by quite quite a long time and they continued to live together for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. um so you know if that had a little bit of a kind of you know, dicey or whatever start, obviously, eventually it kind of, and I I think like all or Elizabeth strikes me as the kind of woman who, if she wasn't okay with this setup, she probably would have left. Right. Because she's more than able to support herself. She's supporting this whole household. Yeah. Um, so Olive, or sorry, Elizabeth agreed to the arrangement and Olive mm-hmm. moved in. Um, so she did have a say in the matter. And I think, agree, I agree, could completely have left and just gotten a job on her own. Um, and eventually each woman has two children by Marston. And so she's supporting this mm-hmm. rather large family. Well, and the other kind of interesting thing, I think part of the reason Elizabeth came around to this arrangement was because Olive was very interested in, in being a... Um, kind of a stay-at-home mom, I guess, and, like, in actively spending her days mothering mm-hmm. and and doing that kind of hands-on parenting, whereas Elizabeth was not so much interested in that and, you know, had her children and loved them and was a great mother, but she wanted to work, and that's what mattered to her. And, of course, at the time, that's, that's particularly... I mean, it's always been tricky. It's still tricky. <laughs> but I think it was particularly so. So it kind of worked out for Elizabeth that Olive was saying, no, I'm happy to you know, kind of be the, the primary caregiver for all of our kids <laughs> and you be the breadwinner and Bill will kind of, I don't know, do his thing. I, I have in my around. notes, I have in my notes, Bill will focus on projects. <laughs> yeah. It kind of does. Yeah. He's like, oh, but the projects, like the, the projects. crazy freelancer that yeah. just gets to run the show. With these know. two ladies kind yeah. of like doing all of the heavy lifting the practical work in yeah. the family and yeah. supporting it. And yeah. One of the articles we talked about, talked about the 
basically he was standing on the shoulders of these women and, yeah. and getting a lot of credit for a lot of the work they were doing. Yeah, which behind is kind the of scenes, one of the things is, that makes Bill a complicated right. fellow. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, all right. So we have this for, from all accounts from within the family, functional family group. So two wives, multiple children. Um, the the children who are now adults themselves have reported nothing untoward from their, their childhood. And it seems like a very happy home. But we should say that... Um, yeah, it was a happy home, but they went to great lengths to um, kind of <laughs> obfuscate the real situation. Mm-hmm. And they kind of at different times throughout their lives described it in different ways. But it sounds as though the par- none of the parents at any time were honest about the kid to the kids about who their parents were. I mean, I think the kids ended up realizing by the time they were adults, like kind of mm. what the situation was and who's whose mother was whose um but uh that was never openly acknowledged even within the family and outwardly it was always described that like well olive i think at times she was described she was like a sister or something yeah. or a cousin like or the like a widowed sister a widowed sister-in-law or she's, like yeah. she's our living housekeeper there were a couple different yeah. roles yeah. that they kind of captured. and certainly her relationship with bill was never um i mean yeah for all intents and purposes she was a, a wife but that was never formalized or legalized right right. and this is also why she didn't wear a wedding ring instead she wore a pair of bracelets um similar to the wristbands that wonder woman wears oh and lots of the authors we're reading you know draw the comparison between the two um and they say things like you know is it a sign of fidelity in marriage or is it a sign of bondage uh which we will get into a lot about bondage (laughs) Uh, so another family connection that I'd like to tease out is the fact that the new second wife, Olive Bernie, uh, was the niece of uh, another very strong woman, a big feminist and suffragette. A big uh, feminist. Big feminist. Yeah. She's big in fem- feminism. Uh, her name is Margaret Sanger. So you might've heard of her before. Uh, she's a very famous birth control advocate, uh, American birth control advocate. And, uh, she worked towards creating birth control clinics and getting women access to birth control and information about it and all this stuff. Uh, so she was a huge figure in, in women's history. Um, and her and her sister Ethel, uh, started the first birth control clinic together. Um, and Ethel was all of Bernie's mother. So the family now has this connection with this like really strong, um, group of women and, and feminists. Um, but they didn't advertise the fact that they were connected or that that connection existed. Um, but what it does kind of tell us about, um, Marston is that he had a penchant for strong women. There were a mm-hmm. lot of strong women in his life and he wasn't intimidated by them. Uh, wasn't scared by them. And, uh, so I think that kind of, you know, you can pull from that, that he was going to create strong women in, in yeah. his comics as well. Um, and it's interesting to think a, a couple of the resources we were looking at were kind of pointing out that um, he, I mean, people have said like, oh, he based Wonder Woman on Olive or he based her on Margaret Sanger. And I think probably all of that is true. Like he probably based her on all three of those very important women in his life and maybe even some other women because you can kind of see elements of their characters in wonder woman and yeah like you say he obviously had a thing for strong women which is pretty awesome (laughs) so it's a point in his favor we kind of go back and forth on the marston like points board (laughs) a a check in the yay side and a check in the nay side (laughs) i think the yay side in general balances or like over over rules the nay side stronger (laughs) yeah i mean he you know 
he could be a little lazy. He could be a little, <laughs> I don't know, entitled, whatever. But at the same time, he was way ahead of, I think, most of the men uh, around him at the time. It's true. He's very interested in women's empowerment. And, yeah. But at the same time, very interested in women's bondage. So it's right. an odd combination <laughs> of, of features. But um, so uh, all of this to say that he had a very... Um, non-typical or atypical background and family situation and had Gaines, the sort of uh, creator of the original comic books, had he Gaines known this when he hired uh, Marston, he probably wouldn't have hired him. <laughs> so right. He's basically hiring him to keep anything controversial or too sexy out of comics. And he's hiring this guy who's going to like sex parties hosted by his aunt. So <laughs> it's like swingers parties and like bondage parties. Everything he's doing in his private life is basically what he's being hired to keep out of these these publications <laughs> so it seems a little ironic yes it is yes. um but the two came up with this um way of marking their comics so they would stamp the comics with quote a dc publication end quote and that would show its quality and the fact that there was um no controversial material inside it so it was basically like a movie rating system almost um and that's where we kind of get the dc name starting off um and so Marston had read a lot of comics uh, at this time, at least, and he suggested he wanted a female uh, hero to combat what he called, quote, the blood-curling masculinity of most <laughs> comics. And Gaines agreed, uh, but he said, Marston, you've got to write it yourself. Like, it's up to you, buddy. <laughs> he said, if you want that to happen, you've got a creator. Uh, so he set about doing exactly that. So uh, Marston set out to draw his his female uh, hero hero or heroine, and um, it was not without controversy. So, well, we should clarify: Marston didn't draw her. Sorry, sorry. He correct. wrote the stories, but he didn't illustrate and like developed the character. But she was illustrated by a professional illustrator. Correct. Thank you. Um, yeah, but Marston would give really detailed descriptions of how some of the scenes would appear. And he often focused a lot and like maybe too much on the bondage scenes where <laughs> Wonder Woman is chained up or tied up or gagged. Um, and he would give like, like minute details all the way, like working from the top down, how she was tied and how the chains were connected and all this stuff. And in one letter, he was like, oh, you know, our, our the ma male readers are experts in these in these details. And I think some of the female editors were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so eventually the amount that Wonder Woman was bound in the comics, how often she was tied up or chained or you know it invited know remark yes absolutely <laughs> yeah and so so the whole bondage thing was definitely kind of a deliberate callback to suffrage iconography from earlier in the century because the um women being bound and changed was such a an image that was used a lot in um suffragist artwork um and marston as we said kind of in his personal life had kind of a thing for bondage we think um but also was as we know he was a strong feminist he um family members of his were very much involved in the suffrage movement so he was very aware of all this iconography and it was it's kind of very deliberately written into to wonder woman um and you see like there are comparisons between certain well-known suffrage cartoons or or images juxtaposed against 
panels from Wonder Woman and um, the similarities are, are really interesting. And the whole bondage thing, like when he was challenged on it, which of course, as you said, um, didn't take long for people to be <laughs> like, what's with all the bondage? Like, <laughs> um, and his, his point was that, well, she needs to be bound so that she can break her chains and burst forth, which was kind of the whole point of the bondage iconography from the suffrage movement that, you know, we're bound, but we're going to break free and, you know, exit slavery. Um, so it was, it was very deliberate and very important to him. And at different times, of course, different people who objected to all the bondage would write in and say can't you like you know find some other ways to you know inconvenience wonder woman and he always just kind of threw it i was like no 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 no. she needs to be bound keep keep chaining her yeah Yeah, keep keep chaining her up (laughs) the first female editor to work on the comic uh wrote to him suggesting you know maybe we cut this down by 50 to 75 percent and she sent him a long list of other options for how he could restrict wonder woman or confine her in different ways and he said like yeah thanks for the ideas but we're we're just gonna keep it the same so as you were saying the feminist in suffrage movements had a lot of these very well-known images of women chained and this sort of thing but um, often women in these movements were using it as kind of a stunt or a publicity piece um, to bring attention to their their cause so you might have heard of Emmeline Pankhurst uh, she was a British woman who chained herself to the fence of 10 Downing Street which is where the Prime Minister resides um, and this was like a political statement and then um, American suffragettes threatened to do the same thing at the White House so chain themselves to the fence in front of the White House um, so women are using this imagery in, you know, in an attempt to further their cause or, or get what they need. Um, and so Marston is definitely picking up on this and reusing these images and like rehashing them and weaving them into the iconography of woman, Wonder Woman herself, um, including her, her wristbands um, as part of that. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of kind of connections and like interrelations there, uh, which, yeah. are, which are pretty Very interesting. interesting. So speaking of the look of Wonder Woman and her her uh, wristlets, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they're called. That's, that's a wonderful name. Like, like bracelets, but wristlets. Yeah, yeah, because they're right. wider. I don't know. Yeah. So I think we already mentioned that they were based on all of Byron or Bernie or however you want to say her name, yep. on her bracelets that she wore. So aside from those, um, when he was first starting to produce the comic... Um, Marston had a lot of back and forth with his illustrator about what Wonder Woman would actually look like and what her costume would be and, and all of that kind of thing. And there was just like tons and tons of back and forth. And there's a lot of really interesting, um, images in the book that we, that we referenced by Jill Laporte. Um, so you should go check that out. Um, but you can see kind of the notes and like sketches of her and like different costumes and things. Um, pretty early on though, her basic look was kind of established that red bustier with a golden Eagle across the chest. Um, and then there was some kind of back and forth about her, uh, the bottom portion of her outfit. It was always kind of blue with the white stars, but should it be little shorts or should it be a skirt? So for a while, I think it was a skirt, but ultimately pretty quickly it, it became the shorts that, um, we're kind of familiar with, uh, the kind of thing that Linda Carter wore in the TV show. We'll get to that later. Um, but the, uh, the footwear was kind of, um, there was some back and forth on that. So originally she was kind of drawn with these little like sandals, like kind of very <laughs> Athenian looking little sandals like and Marston. Gladiator yeah, shoes. exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and 
Marston kind of pointed out to the illustrator very astutely, I think, like, this doesn't really go with the look of the outfit. So um, eventually her red boots were what they hit on as Uh as the right look. Those very iconic, um, you know, high red boots with a little heel. Um, Now, and all of this, it's very interesting that her whole look, you can kind of point to one source that Marston probably saw and probably took his inspiration for the look of Wonder Woman. Um, so there was an artist who, who drew pinup girls and they were, <laughs> they were called uh, Varga girls after his last name. And they're very famous. You can Google them and find all the Varga girls and they're very classic pinup uh, images. And there's one in particular of this young woman with like dark, like black hair, kind of in a very similar um, style to what Wonder Woman had um, with like a little red kind of halter top thing and like little blue shorts and uh it's it's very clear that there was some inspiration taken from that so that's an interesting little bit of uh background i think that wonder woman's look was based on a pinup girl (laughs) strong you know female feminist character (laughs) like the antithesis of (laughs) yeah yes well i was really glad to hear why she was dressed in basically an american flag um because I had been grouchy about that up to this point. I was like, it doesn't make any sense. And like, based on her origin story, she's Greek from, you know, sort of this Greek island with all Greek women. And I was like, why is she wearing this all, like all American, you know, like very Captain America-esque outfit. Um, and when we get into her backstory, they talk about um, they found the standard or the flag of someone who had crashed on the island. Right. And it had been an American pilot from World War II. Um, and so they used that and they incorporated it into her outfit because it was the only thing they had that was from outside of the island. So they figured, well, when we send her out to meet the rest of the world, we'll put her in this because that came from the outside. <laughs> so maybe, it, you know, maybe she'll blend in um, and it happened to be an American flag. So that's why she has this very American that's so outfit. great. Yeah, and I thought that's wonderful. And then we, there was some contention, not contention, but a little bit of interesting detail about who that pilot was. Because, well, I think you should get into yes. her origin story. Okay, now. well, we'll just launch it from kind there. Kind of started in on and it. I like it. Uh, all right, so Wonder Woman's backstory or her origin story uh, is that she is from a place called Paradise Island, and this is inhabited entirely by immortal Amazons. And her real name is Diana of Themyscira, or Themyscira, uh, and she's the daughter of the queen, so Queen Hippolyta. And she was the first child born on Paradise Island out of its 3,000-year history. Uh, what we, in particular, really liked about this backstory is that this island is populated by these immortals, but they were placed there by a bunch of Greek goddesses um, who drew forth the souls of women who had been murdered by men so basically the victims of male aggression and you know give the, gave them unending life and a female only society right this this beautiful matriarchy where they can live in peace and and be strong and be warriors and all this stuff um and but one soul was held back so the first woman ever murdered by a man went on to be reincarnated as Queen Hippolyta and that woman had been pregnant with a daughter and so they held back the soul of that little infant daughter and then she was reborn to Queen Hippolyta as as Diana so I thought so this great was, oh I loved it it was it was so um like regenerative and, yeah. and refreshing and wonderful and feminist <laughs> so I loved those details um and Hippolyta um not being able to have a child sort of the average way <laughs> Um, was told, was instructed to build a little 
or make form a little baby out of clay and then the, the gods like breathed life into her um, and thus Diana is created uh, so she's given gifts gifts of beauty and strength and all these things um, and she grew up in the sisterhood of women it was trained as a warrior so okay that's sort of her life on the island then uh, the gods decree that the Amazons have to send someone out into the world they hold a championship uh, well I guess it's how you choose a champion by having a championship makes uh-huh. sense yeah and uh, Quinn Hippolyta said Diana you can't compete and Diana of course says no way I'm competing <laughs> she disguises herself she easily beats all the competition and is chosen to be the one uh, to go off the island so she's given her lasso of truth the sandals of Hermes um, and when she enters the world, interestingly, she's one of the only superheroes who doesn't show up speaking English already. <laughs> so people like <laughs> Superman, you know, from distant planets. And... Well, to be fair, Superman was raised on Earth. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. But uh, so she was, the, I think, one of the only superheroes who had to learn English upon entering sort of the modern world. Um, and uh, she starts her adventures in Boston, where she meets um, Dr. Capitellus and her daughter, Vanessa Capitellus, and also her future love interest, Steve Trevor. Oh, Steve Trevor. Whoa, he shows up. And uh, the always fun, Etta Candy. <laughs> oh, Etta Candy. <laughs> so if you're familiar with the character or her stories, you'll know all those names. Um, and she lives with the Capitellus family, learning English. Um, is exposed in a battle with a minion of Ares, um, trying to save the world from nuclear disaster. And this battle, um, I think in or near Boston, uh, is where the the press find out and the media dubs her Wonder Woman. So that's mm-hmm. how she gets her name. Right. Uh, yeah. And then eventually she goes on to become part of the Justice League of America. Well, we'll get into that. Yes. Um, but just, so that's kind of the original origin story and, you know, of course, that origin has been retold. Yes. I'm sure many times. Yeah, different variations. Yep. There are, of course, many different storylines, uh, as is common in comic books. Um, but that's the original. Um, and kind of what quickly came out of that was she... So Steve Trevor uh, is in the military. She ends up um, giving herself a secret identity, Diana Prince. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> um, and becomes Steve Trevor's secretary um, in her in her um, secret identity life. But, of course, as Wonder Woman, she's constantly rescuing Steve from scrapes and carrying him around, and uh, <laughs> which is so awesome, right? Yeah. It's just such a fantastic flip, especially at the yeah. time. Um so her the first few years, uh, Marston's writing her, and he's adamant about keeping those feminist storylines strong, which is so great. And the early years of Wonder Woman are just classic and so, um, so empowering and and so wonderful. And a lot of uh, feminists in decades since have kind of said of the early Wonder Woman comics that they're just unbelievably feminist for the time period and kind of. From our vantage point now, they're startlingly uh, progressive. I remember being surprised to read how early these storylines were because I was like, there's no way. And then, I, you know, they're coming out in the 40s and the 50s. And uh, it just seems so early for something so progressive. So. Well, and what's interesting, of course, is that she kind of, you uh, you know, I, you had mentioned previously that it, it seemed like it would go the other way. That, yeah, she would start as kind of a, you know, whatever, secondary or more kind of traditionally feminine character and develop over the years mm. into the strong Wonder Woman. But she started out that way. And then, unfortunately, ended up going through kind of a dark period and we'll get to that in a second but uh first of all i just wanted to mention she did have to fight her battles even with marston by her side uh-huh. defending her uh and defending her right to be a strong female superhero uh, so when 
you know, World War II struck. And of course, in the comics, all of the superheroes were going off to war. And uh, Wonder Woman is kind of like, she stays at home and is like, see ya boys, wish I could go with you. And he was really mad about that. It just did like, it was a whole thing. And that kind of came out of the whole Justice League thing. So she had her own book, her own comic book before long. And um, uh, after a couple of years, um, the uh, DC Comics, they had already established uh, the Justice League, which of course, famously, Batman and Superman and Aquaman and all the other men, all the other men. Um, And uh, it was the question of whether they should induct Wonder Woman into the Justice League of America. So um, Gaines actually conducted a poll sent out to all of these children and overwhelmingly both (laughs) girls and boys voted in favor of Wonder Woman being allowed to enter the Justice League even though she's a woman, and that is lifted almost verbatim from the uh, text of the poll. So <laughs> she was, yeah, she was admitted in the Justice League, which was great. But unfortunately, the Justice League books were written by someone other than Marston. So the writer of those stories made Wonder Woman the secretary. Oh, gosh. <laughs> secretary again. I know, so depressing. <laughs> Um, so she's in the Justice League, but she's the secretary. So she's still, even with Marston and even with him writing all those strong storylines, she's really having to fight her battles. Um, unfortunately, um, Marston died in 1947, uh, relatively young. Um, and Wonder Woman kind of went downhill from there. Obviously her writing of her stories was taken over by somebody else. And, um, Elizabeth had petitioned the company to let her write the stories and they, they just wouldn't have it. So they assigned somebody else and kind of very quickly Wonder Woman did become this much more traditionally, stereotypically feminine character. And there were a whole bunch of things that were kind of depressing about, you know, what happened to her character, including in one episode, she finally relents and um, agrees to marry Steve Trevor, who was always pestering her to marry him. (laughs) Um, And, uh, but the kind of the most depressing part is in the fifties uh, and I think the sixties actually. So through the fifties, this was happening and she just wasn't as good. And then in the sixties, uh, they had a period um, now known as the Diana Prince era <laughs> when wonder woman was just like stripped of all of her powers and just became a regular woman, Diana Prince, who kind of became this like spy character. Like the way they were describing her, she sounded to me a little bit more like Black Widow or something, which I mean, that's fine if that's the character, but it's just, it's completely crappy that they have her writing in that she's renouncing her super powers and just becoming a regular human. And and then she like holds a series of different jobs. Like I think she owned a boutique and like was a babysitter (laughs) and all this stuff, which is just like, come on, like she's Barbie or something. (laughs) Right. right? So depressing. Mm. Um, so this kind of continued the, the lackluster wonder woman after Marston died, continued for kind of a, you know, a couple of decades, um, until she was rescued by Ms. Magazine, Mm -hmm. famous Ms. Magazine, of course, spearheaded by Gloria Steinem in, uh, 1971. That was the first, uh, sorry, the first, um, issue. 1971 was the first issue of Ms. Magazine and the editors of the magazine, of course, wanted to make a big splash and wanted to find some iconic image to put on the cover of their first revolutionary feminist magazine. Um, And somebody had the good idea to resurrect 
powerful Wonder Woman. So that's what they did. And I, I very much encourage all of you to look up that cover of um, of Ms. Magazine. And it's got, you know, Ms. at the top. And then it says Wonder Woman for president. And there's this giant Wonder Woman um Uh, kind of like running down a street like off to save the world (laughs) it's so awesome and just to give you a sense of like this whole cover is just so great so some of the cover articles that are advertised um are um money for housework uh (laughs) and then there's a profile on new feminist simone de beauvoir and then um gloria steinem on how women vote and then finally my favorite article and i totally want to go read it body hair the last frontier (laughs) (laughs) it's so great Uh, so this uh this use by ms magazine of wonder woman kind of led to a resurrection of wonder woman as as a strong amazing feminist character and it wasn't too long uh into the 70s before the famous tv show took off with linda carter and so that that ran from 1975 to 79 it was quite popular i think lots of little girls dressed up as wonder woman for halloween uh with a lasso of truth (laughs) (laughs) and since then of course the the character has continued i don't think that the wonder woman comic has ever stopped at any point but of course over the years there have been lots of different timelines and iterations and reimaginings and reorigin stories but i think you were looking at a more recent one the 19, 19, 2016, 2017 re-origin story, right? Uh, yeah. So I was looking up um, some art when we were doing the research for this article or this episode. And uh, I noticed that a few pictures really caught my eye where Wonder Woman looked particularly Greek. And I liked that she had that that background. Mm-hmm. Um, a little and, more swarthy. Yeah. She was, she was stronger. She looked yep. more realistic. Um, yep. And all the other people, and especially the other women portrayed in these in these panels that I saw were, were realistic. It was women of color and it was women of different body shapes and different ages. And I was like, who is drawing this? And like, I need to know more. So I finally tracked down. Um, it's an illustrator, an Australian illustrator named Nicola Scott. Um, and she's very well known within the industry and within Wonder Woman. Uh, but she illustrated Wonder Woman year one, uh, which is, I think another retelling of the origin Mm -hmm. story. Um, and all the art that I've seen is just so, so empowering and so um you know progressive and mm-hmm. and i love that but what's neat is that it's progressive but going back to wonder woman's roots yeah so like re-progressive almost um, yeah if you will. I like that. Yeah, yeah so so go look up wonder woman year one i think i yes. will probably do that actually because it looks like a book i'd really like to read absolutely and i even thought that i i mean i'm not a big sort of comic fan on my own but i saw the these illustrations just a few panels and i was like oh i kind of want to check this out so it's strong enough on the basis of maybe three images to pull me to be like you know what i'll check that one so out. there you go there if you it go. gets heather <laughs> you should go check get it almost out. anyone yeah exactly <laughs> so what wonder woman is up to now uh, more recently um there was sort of a big kerfuffle in 2016 uh so last year she was named she was designated a un honorary ambassador for the empowerment of women and girls mm. so the un has these sustainable development goals this is goal number five to achieve gender equality and empower women and girls uh and this is on the 75th anniversary of Wonder Woman's um, launch. So it was very appropriate. And, you know, this is fun and exciting and you know, very cool. Um, unfortunately, her position was canceled after two months because she was considered overtly sexualized and more sexualized than people would have liked for that position, a position empowering women and girls. Um, so this sparked a lot of debate. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I'm very torn on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see why people... And I hope it, I hope that people objecting weren't purely objecting because 
she is somewhat scantily clad because I feel like, you know, the whole point of feminism is that women can wear whatever they want, right? right? So as long as that's not the reasoning and the reasoning (laughs) is that um, she's sexualized, I can kind of see the argument. I tend to fall more on on the opposite side of the debate because when I look at Wonder Woman um, and when she's drawn, as you described in, in year one and in some of the really best um, illustrations of Wonder Woman. To me, she doesn't look sexualized. Mm. And there are lots and lots of example of overly sexualized women in comic books. All you have to do is look up the Hawkeye initiative, which is absolutely <laughs> hilarious and fabulous. And it's a, it's a, it's a comical and critical look at the way women are, are drawn and, and portrayed in comic books. And so there are lots of problematic over sexualized uh, images of women comics. Wonder Woman, I think, I mean, yes, she's scantily clad, but to me, she's never looked sexualized or like drawn for the male gaze. Like she seems to me strong and powerful and independent. So I don't know. I kind of like her as a, as an icon of a female Mm -hmm. empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate and say that if we're thinking in a global context, like in North American media, we're used to very scantily clad women. But if you're thinking of this in a global perspective, this would be very um, mm. maybe shocking or immodest for huge swaths of the globe. And so it's that kind of, um, you know, North American, like the, the spread of North American values or, mm, or this true. sort of thing, right? So um, the Americanization of the rest of the world, mm-hmm. right? Is this what we want to empower our girls and women towards? Like wearing less, you know, why is why is that? And while I don't necessarily agree with all of that, um, I'm hoping girls and women around the world are wearing what they want to wear and as much or as little as they would like. Um, you know, it's, I can definitely see the point of the mm-hmm. people making that argument. Yeah, so, absolutely. That's a very yeah. good point. I think kind of what it, <laughs> one of the other problems with this debate at its core is, and we always get this, right? The yeah. expectation that one woman is going to be a symbol for all women. And that's, not right. You know, this is why we need lots and lots of different symbols of women, uh, women doing all sorts of different things. And there shouldn't be, um, as I think you had mentioned earlier, the, the tokenism kind of, of you get a group of men and then you've got the one woman representing all women. Right. Like, and so it becomes like in the justice league. Exactly. You know, if Wonder Woman is the only woman there. Then she has to represent all she women. She has to represent everyone. And there's no way any one character could ever do that. So if half the Justice League were women or, you know, more of the uh, UN designates are women, although I don't really know how many are women. I, I hope they do a good job <laughs> of balancing. <laughs> but, you know, if, if there are just more women represented, then there's a much higher chance that they're going to be able to cover the spectrum of women of worldwide. Different women. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you had kind of, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. And um, I really like what you said that... Um, no one woman should have to be everything to everyone because that's unreasonable. You wouldn't expect that of men, but so often, and this is, this is a problem in our society is that often enough, one female character or one representation of, of a woman is supposed to stand in for all of us. And that's not right. It's just not accurate. No, it's not accurate. Exactly. (laughs) That's my argument as well. Like leave all ethics and morals aside. It's just not accurate. You know, like women are more than the majority on the planet. So like anytime you're doing anything, they should be slightly more than the majority of anything you're doing. Like just to be accurate for humanity. This is not a moral issue. It's simply a, here we are, 
there are more of us. <laughs> so I like it. Let's get more seats at the table. I right? like it. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm very, very, very excited and curious to see this new movie and yes. see how they portray Wonder Woman. I have high hopes um, <laughs> based on kind of the, the trailer. I thought the trailer was fantastic. Mm. Um and what we saw of Wonder Woman in the um, laughably bad Batman versus Superman, <laughs> she was certainly the best part of that movie. Um, so I hold out high hopes mm-hmm. for Wonder Woman. Um, and please, like, go see this movie because, of course, it matters to Hollywood how much money they make. And if if we can prove to them that people really do want to see female superheroes headlining their own movies and just like strong women characters headlining movies in general vote with your with your money and and make that point because we want to see more of these movies we want to see black widow black widow (laughs) (laughs) i'm tired of waiting for a black widow movie (laughs) (laughs) so let let marvel know through dc (laughs) that you want to see a black widow movie (laughs) speak with your pocketbook and exactly see Wonder Woman. Exactly. So, um, and, uh, you know, once the movie comes out and you go see it, which, again, we encourage you to do, write in and let us know what you think. Uh, did she live up to expectations? How do you feel about the feminist or non-feminist, mm-hmm. as the case may be, portrayal of Wonder Woman? What do you think of Gal Gadot's performance? What do you think of, <laughs> I don't know, Chris Pine's performance? Um, we'll definitely be seeing this movie and we're excited to uh, to know uh, exactly how they did yeah absolutely. i'm hoping it passes the bechdel test yeah at the very well least. good lord <laughs> i should hope so it had better <laughs> all right well on that note uh i don't have anything else do you no that's all my notes all right so let's wrap up um so as always we'll be posting the resources that we use to prepare for this episode on our website yesterladies.com along with the audio of this podcast um of course you can find us on itunes or whatever podcast app you use uh, uh, you can write to us at yesterladies at gmail.com. That's where you can send us your opinions on the Wonder Woman movie. Huh. Um, of course, you can always tweet those to us as well. Or on hit on Twitter, our handle is at yesterladies. Or you can comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash yesterladies. And I'm going to put in one more plug. This is your last chance to send in uh, topic suggestions for our Canada Day extravaganza. <laughs> As previously mentioned, you can look for that at the very end of June. Um, I think we've decided on releasing it on June 30th, the day before Canada Day. So it'll be all ready to go and you can listen to it on Canada Day Eve or <laughs> whenever you want. Um, and we're going to do a kind of a series of Canadian lady-themed topics. So if you've got suggestions for individual ladies or, you know, lady-inspired stories from the history of Canada, uh, we'd love to hear those. So let us know. And uh, until next time, I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. Thank you for listening. 